I invite you to remain standing a moment longer for this morning's reading from the Gospel. I'll be reading from John's Gospel, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. For our wine drinkers, this is often one of the most favorite stories in the Bible as Jesus changes that water into wine. But I want to think about weddings. I want you to think about a wedding. I want you to think about uh, what may have gone into... Now, notice I didn't ask you to think about your own, but you might. But certainly most of us have been to a wedding, if not our own. We, we know that a wedding usually is filled with excitement, not for the planners necessarily. Uh, they get a little anxious most often. Uh, but it's a lot of hard work, and certainly the occasion is joyous and, and meant to be a loving occasion. And I'm blessed that our wedding, uh, to, to the love of my life, was very simple. We, we had a church wedding. Uh, it, we were uh, young and didn't have much money, and our church stepped up and helped us with a reception and all of the wonderful things. But it's strange in those moments of joy and love, the, the key people in that wedding... Melissa, myself, my best man who reminds me of the frog incident. When I dropped a frog in Melissa's wedding dress as we were trying to leave, the, now you might ask, why was there a frog involved? The best man had put a frog on the dashboard of my car, and as I was trying to throw the frog out of the car, I hit the ceiling of the car, and that frog dropped into her beautiful wedding dress. <laughs> and there was a little bit of panic at our wedding as we were leaving. But in this, uh, this passage of Scripture I shared with you today, this is a wedding, and it's a wedding 2,000 years ago. It's a Jewish custom. We, we see this. Uh, we, you know, in weddings of that day, there are some interesting things that we might uh, contrast uh, their uh, customs to our modern-day customs. I'll let you draw the comparisons. Certainly, uh, it's a big deal, just uh, as it is in most of our lives. Weddings are a big deal. It was 2,000 years ago. But back then, in the Jewish custom, their weddings could last up to a week. Can you imagine a week-long celebration? And the newly married couple was, was, in a sense, obligated to keep their home open so that people could come celebrate this wedding with them. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine the bride and the groom wearing not only their bridal robes, but crowns on their head? That was a, a custom that was observed often back in the day. And so you start to imagine kings and queens, a royalty. And yes, that's exactly the way it was. As a matter of fact, there are some instances uh, referenced where the bride and the groom were actually addressed as king and queen there in their home. Very uh, different kinds of, of things going on. Food and wine, you couldn't run out of food and wine. This was part of the celebration. So as friends and family, as neighbors gathered for the celebration, you were expected to feed them. So quite often there were leftovers uh, of, of a wedding. It was a big no-no to run out, to not have enough. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are some places uh, where it seems that the bride and groom were fined uh, by locals for running out of either food or wine during these celebrations. So again, a big no-no. So in today's story, you see now this wedding begins to take on a little bit of a different context. We see uh, Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, she is at this... Now, Cana, of Cana uh, is, is about three and a half miles away from Jesus' home. Uh, it's interesting that John starts us off by telling uh, the third day, uh, kind of one of those forecasts of, of the, the three days that Jesus uh, spent after his crucifixion before that first resurrection day. But, but Cana is about three and a half miles. It would have been a, a relatively easy travel. Uh, but we see in this scene Mary, uh, Jesus, and, and Jesus' followers. They are all a part. So we can kind of assume, I think, that maybe this person's or these persons being married were somehow friends uh, of Jesus and Mary and some of the disciples, perhaps, for them all to be present at this uh, wedding. So as the wedding begins to, uh, uh, as the wedding scene continues, we're, we're not privy to the, to the vows of marriage. We're not privy to any of that. But we're now in the, the point of the celebration when the wine runs out. So now that we realize that running out of wine is a no-no, here is Mary concerned, perhaps, for her friend. And she also has this growing understanding of who her son Jesus is. And I think we can assume that she believes Jesus can help the situation out, so she tells Jesus they're out of wine. Now, in the Aramaic, uh, and I don't read Aramaic, but scholars who do read Aramaic say that Jesus' response that we have here in English shouldn't be read that Jesus is anyway condescending his mother Mary. As a matter of fact, he is just letting her know that it's really not his responsibility nor hers uh, to be concerned about this. Uh, as a matter of fact, he winds up saying, my hour has not yet come. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So we're not privy to the miracle. Uh, we, we, we just see what happens before the miracle and what happens after the miracle. We are... I think can be clear that John wants us to realize that Mary really has no authority over Jesus. When Jesus says, this is not our business and my hour has not yet come, he is politely reminding Mary that she really has no authority to the Son of God, over the Son of God. But what happens? I, I see Mary walking away and then we see Jesus telling the, the servants, see those six stone jars? By the way, it's stone is important instead of clay. If they had been clay jars, they would have been susceptible to, uh, to all of the, the purity regulations. But these are stone jars. 
uh, and usually used for the purification rites. Jesus tells the servants to fill them up to the brim. There's no room to, to switch anything out or to do anything different. And then to take a, a spoon or a ladle full of the contents to the chief steward there at the celebration. He sips it and says, wow, this is some good wine. And then he goes on to compliment uh, the bridegroom for actually providing this really superior wine. As a matter of fact, six of these 20 to 30 gallon stone jars of wine for this ongoing party. The bride and the bridegroom have been rescued. They're not going to be in hot water now with the guests. They're not going to face any kind of a fine. And so Jesus has given us in this second chapter of John's gospel, the first of the seven signs or miracles that we find in the first half of John's gospel. So we're going to talk a little bit about miracles uh, this morning. We're going to see, I want you to consider how John talks about Jesus in different ways than the synoptic gospels do, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this sense that, that there's going to be a return of Jesus. Well, we just don't have a sense. We're told that he's going to come back. And we're told when he comes back, when he returns, is this great salvific event when all of the people who have had faith in him as the Son of God, everything's going to be put back in its right order the way God originally designed in creation. Everything's going to be restored. All of the faithful people will be reunited with Jesus. And that's the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke portray Jesus. But in John's gospel, there's a couple of important things we need to realize. John starts off his telling about Jesus in the first chapter. It's a story of incarnation. It's a story of God coming down in human form, taking on human flesh, living as a human, ultimately sacrificing himself so that we can have this life. And so it's abundant. This is abundant love. This John's gospel, this is a story about God's abundant love for God's people. And we see that in this first sign, this first miracle, if you will, that all of a sudden six stone jars of superior quality wine are provided. We don't know how it happens. It's not important the details of how Jesus accomplished this miracle. The importance is, is that God has provided for these people. Okay, And when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what he's saying is, is I'm here now. But my hour, when God is going to be glorified, has not yet come. And so we have incarnation and we have here and now. That's a little bit different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke where we wait in this great expectation that Jesus, who's promised to return, will come again and everything will be made right versus here in John's gospel where Jesus is telling us decisions are to be made here and now. Not waiting God is causing these little moments in life and we have the opportunity to decide now. And so difference in the way these stories are being told. And, and, and Jesus has this encounter with his mother Mary. It's not a disrespectful encounter. Jesus has this encounter with the chief steward uh, who sips the wine, who realizes and claims the miracle on the other side of the miracle actually occurring. And we have this uh, master of the, of the whole event, the, the bridegroom himself, and he's going to be respected because he didn't run out of, of this wine. So these are all kind of complementary stories going on in the bigger picture. What I want us to, to focus on now is the purpose of miracles in the New Testament. 
This was the first in John's gospel, the first of seven in that first half of the gospel. The purpose of these New Testament miracles is not some act of compassion as much as it is to point to the presence of God in the world. These events are pointing to Jesus to say this is the Son of God. Only the Son of God can do this thing. And six more times in John's Gospel, we have these encounters. And, and, and while we know Jesus is compassionate, we are so tempted regularly to pray for miracles to happen. We have sickness. We have uh, death occurring. We, we grieve. We, we want something miraculous to happen in our lives. And we pray as if these miracles ought to occur. But when we look at Scripture... And how those miracles are used, how they unfold in Scripture, we see that there's a different purpose. Now, certainly, uh, miracles are going to occur. The Scripture talks about miracles occurring. But in this New Testament kind of portrait of, of miracles, it's about bringing God's presence into a reality. Jesus does these things so that people can believe that He is the Son of God, that He is God incarnate. Albert Einstein talks uh, about the, the natural order of the created world. He's, you know, Einstein references the, the, the point that, that God created everything. God spoke things into creation, and as God created, God said, this is good. All these things God created, this is a good world that God has created, right? And then if we move into the story a little bit deeper, as humans make the wrong choice, the natural order of things gets out of kilter, including our... Uh, ability to, to stay anchored in the garden where the tree of life exists. We, we humans are pushed out and, and God's perfectly created world gets out of kilter and things begin to happen. And so what Albert Einstein is saying is, is that, that God has done a really good thing and God entrusted us to manage these things and we've messed it up. And so the natural order of things will continue to occur until God sets it all back right in what we call the end times. So here is, as Einstein points out, here is this opportunity uh, to see uh, uh, miracles, but what we need to consider, C.S. Lewis suggests, is that God in these miracles doesn't disconnect the natural order of things, but as C.S. Lewis says in his work, Miracles, Jesus kind of short-circuits them. Short-circuits them. So they happen... They just might not happen in the timing that we would expect. For instance, we talk about wine. We have vineyards all around our area, growing in number. You go out to California where the Napa and Sonoma Valley are, there are miracles. If you want to talk about water being changed into wine, there are miracles happening every day out there in those vineyards, aren't there? There is water over time being changed into wine. And, and here in our own communities that is occurring, right? So this miracle that Jesus... Uh, is seen uh, being a part of in Cana of Galilee is one of those examples of, of just kind of short-circuiting the timeline. That water could eventually have become wine had it been used to, to water the grapes in the nearby vineyards there in Cana, right? Jesus has just kind of short-circuited the timing. So we need to think in terms of miracles that God intends for the natural progression of things to occur. But again, let's talk and say that there are those moments when a big miracle, something we can't explain, may occur. 
just something totally out of all ways of, of, of human reasoning, something can happen, and, and that can be a miracle too. But for most miracles, they can be everyday occurrences when something unexpected might happen, and yet the natural progression of what God has created is occurring. There's a, a book that some of you have read. There's different versions out there. Uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul by Patricia Lay. She has a story in there uh, of a couple of people who were in college together. Uh, Patricia Lay actually interviews uh, one of the two who, is, who she calls the businessman. And, and she uh, was talking to this businessman, interviewing him about his days in college. And it was back, uh, a ways back, uh, back when a dime was a lot of money. And she said, my, this businessman said, me and my college roommate, we had a dime. We had one month of school left in college, one month till the semester let out, and we had a dime between the two of us. And we didn't know what we were going to do. I, the businessman said, you know, my friend, he was on a, a full scholarship, uh, so he would have his school and fees paid for. Uh, and he said, both of our families each month would write a small check and send it to us so that we could have some spending money. So they, they decided since they had this one dime, they would use it uh, to call the businessman's family uh, because they had a little bit more money. And so they, put, they went to the payphone and put that dime, their investment to get them for the last month, put that dime in that payphone and called home. And home was 500 miles away. And the businessman said, you know, my mom said, things are really tight here. We have no extra money to send you. And so he said, well, did you talk to my roommate's mother? Do they have any money? that they No, they're, they're in just as, the same condition that we are. And so here they are getting this bad news over the phone. There's not going to be any more help coming. So they say their goodbyes. He hangs up the phone receiver and dimes begin to pour out of this payphone. When the dimes quit falling out, there are $7.20 worth of dimes there in the phone booth. And they begin to pick it up and they think about how exciting this is that, that this miracle has occurred, that, that God has given them this money, and then they realize this money isn't ours. We, we didn't earn this money. It's, it's this phones. It's the phone companies. So they call the operator, and she affirms that. No, that's not your money. Put it back in the phone. So they hang up and they try to put all those dimes back in the phone and they continue to just drop out. So they call the operator back and she says, let me talk to a supervisor. Supervisor says, tell them that money is theirs. We can't afford to send somebody from the main office out to get $7.20. So the boys rejoiced. These college boys rejoiced. They're thinking miracles. They, they said, we're going to take this $7.20. We're going to go grocery shopping so that we have some food to get us to the end of the semester. They're in the grocery store. They tell their story. The store manager is touched, and he offers them both a job around their school schedule. And so they're able to make it through the end of the semester. They think it's a miracle. You might too. And if you do, I applaud you for thinking like that because these kinds of miracles happen all around us every day. Sometimes we don't think of them as miracles. Sometimes we just say, that was lucky. Or we might say, I'm blessed or you're blessed. But miracles, friends, are happening all around us. And certainly our God ought to be praised, ought to have glory spoken in God's name for those miracles, and yet we fail to do that as followers of Christ. Dr. John Killinger talks about his friend, Millard Reed. Millard Reed was a, a president of a college. He went to South Carolina 
to speak at an engagement. He got sick while he was there. Uh, they, he was diagnosed subsequently uh, with liver problems. Uh, and, and he somehow received a, a liver transplant in the next few weeks. But one day, Millard was depressed. He was feeling depressed, and he got up, and he, he, he told his wife, I'm going to go for a walk. And he went out, and he walked through the local park, and he began to notice uh, the, the beautiful things that were going on. He saw some flowers, and in a split second, a bumblebee charged him from out of these flowers. Now, Millard was an educated man, obviously. He knew that bumblebees were really big and bulky critters that have little wings that don't do them justice. They're not aerobatic. They're not acrobatic. They're just, they just barely fly, it seems. And, and as this bumblebee was coming at him, it did a loop-de-loop and went back to the flowers. Completely surprised Millard because he knew bumblebees can't fly like that. And yet, that's what this bumblebee did. Millard Reed thought about the stories of Job where God asks Job, can you create a horse? Can you create a whale? Are you capable of doing any of these things that I've done? And Millard Reed had a change that moment. He rushed home in tears, and his wife thought it was because of his recovery from that liver transplant that something had gone wrong, and he said, no, I am a part of a miracle God has put a miracle in our lives. And from that point, Millard Reed began to celebrate the miracle that he was a part of. And yet we know for Millard to have received a liver meant somebody else passed away. How do you see miracles in your life? Do you think there are these once-a-lifetime events or maybe a, a, a miracle will not occur in our life, but maybe in the next generation? Or will you consider that these Wonderful little blessings that occur in everyday life could be a part of a miracle, all pointing to God's ongoing, continuing presence in our world, in our lives. Maybe this morning as we come to the Lord's table, welcomed, welcomed just as we are, maybe that's another miracle when we realize we really didn't do anything like Jesus did to get to this table. God did it for us. And God welcomes us as we come in faith, knowing that God is a God of miracles. Maybe not the kinds we hope and pray for on occasion, but a God of everyday miracles, sharing in abundant love like He did at Cana of Galilee in that wine, sharing in everyday comfort and support and encouragement when we realize that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is alive and real in our world and in our lives. Give thanks today for the miracles that are occurring all around us. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are coming.